but at the same time, the U.S. is certainly much more aligned philosophically and geostrategically with what Japan wants for the world ahead. So it'll be an interesting balancing act. But I do think, again, the bottom line is this is a good moment for a reset between Japan and the U.S., and uh, it could be interesting. Could be interesting weeks and months coming up. Thanks very much, William. That's William yes. Pesic, Tokyo-based journalist and author. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets, U.S. stock index futures slipping back a little bit now. They're down about uh, a third of a percent. Uh, the SX200 in Australia up one and a quarter percent. In Japan, the Nikkei, uh, Nikkei 225 close to a 30-year high, up about one percent. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng is going to add on about 300 points, just over one percent uh, in an hour's time when trading starts here. In the commodities markets, uh, gold is rallying. It's up about $8 at the moment, $1,871 an ounce. Uh, but Brent crude oil is slipping. It's at $42.05 a barrel. And the US dollar itself is also slipping as well. It's at 105.1 against the Japanese yen. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for uh, Money Talk. And stay tuned on Radio 3 for back chats with Hugh Chiverton and Ada Wong coming up next. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, one or two light rain patches at first. The maximum temperature is going to be about 25 degrees. The outlook, mainly fine and dry in the next couple of days, slightly cooler in the morning and at night. And the temperature right now is 22 degrees, 55% relative humidity. 8.31 and a half, Samantha Butler has the latest news headlines. Health experts, politicians and the wider community have welcomed the news that an experimental coronavirus vaccine is more than 90% effective in preventing COVID-19 infections. The vaccine is developed in the United States and Germany by Pfizer and BioNTech. Experts warn caution is still needed and there will be serious logistical challenges in producing and distributing the vaccine globally. Pfizer's chief scientific officer, Michael Dalston, said it was an important day for everyone involved. While I was sitting next to our CEO, Albepola, hoping for high numbers, this certainly was fulfilling our best expectations. And we just felt so thrilled. It felt like a historic moment. There are more steps that needs to happen, but we feel that we are on the cusp of one of the biggest medical advances for society and mankind in the hundred years that have passed here. Civic Party leader Alvin Young says he trusts supporters understand their difficult decision to resign en masse if any opposition lawmakers are disqualified. There are reports Beijing wants to oust four of them for filibustering LegCo meetings. This includes Mr Young, fellow party members Dennis Kwok and Kwok Haki, and Kenneth Leung from the Professionals Guild. Mr Young said such a move by Beijing would be ridiculous. When we decided to stay on LegCo in September, we know it's going to be difficult. We thought this is the best way to try to stop any controversial laws from being passed at the legislature. But if any one of us got disqualified, that is to say, the pro-establishment camp can one by one remove us by passing impeachment motions. So this is not a welcoming thing to see. President Trump's campaign team has filed a lawsuit against the state of Pennsylvania, alleging its mail-in voting system for the presidential election lacked transparency and verifiability. It seeks an emergency injunction to stop state officials from certifying Joe Biden's victory in Pennsylvania, the success which gave him enough electoral college votes to be certain of victory. The White House and Republican officials have also been giving details of their legal challenges to the result, but have again presented no evidence. The Republican 
Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has backed Donald Trump's refusal to concede victory. Mr McConnell said Mr Trump was within his rights to file lawsuits in swing states, adding on the floor of the Senate that a few legal inquiries did not exactly spell the end of the republic. The president has every right to look into allegations and to request recounts under the law. And notably, the Constitution gives no role in this process to wealthy media corporations. The projections and commentary of the press do not get veto power over the legal rights of any citizen, including the President of the United States. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Tewitt and your co-host today is Ada Wong. Ada, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Today we're talking about Joe Biden and about animal abuse. The question on everybody's mind around the world following the election in the United States is what Biden will be like, especially when it comes to international relations, how he and his administration approaches China and Hong Kong, of course. Will his trade strategy alter? What about tariffs and sanctions on officials? Will things change in respect to Taiwan and the South China Sea? Well, we want to hear from you, your questions and your comments. As ever, our address, backchat at rthk.hk. You can comment on our Facebook page. That's backchat on rthk radio 3. Or you can call us, and our number is 233-88266, And off 19 9.15, we're going to be talking about animal issues with animal smuggling and abuse cases recently involving dogs, a cat and a wild boar. More on that later. Backchat at rthk.hk. Just before we get to uh, into the meat of our, of our first topic, um, here's a, a, a few comments uh, with a common theme. Uh, Dan says in a Facebook, in the famous words of the baseball great Yogi Berra, it ain't over until it's over. And that includes the 2020 US election. There are valid concerns about the integrity of the process and vote in key states such as Pennsylvania, where there was a clear violation of the federal constitution by the Democrat governor and Democrat-controlled Supreme Court. This process needs to go forward to resolve the immediate concerns as well as future elections. It took 37 days and two Supreme Court decisions to conclude Bush v. Versus Gore and the problems in one state, Florida, in 2000. Clearly, Trump and his team believe there is yet a path to victory, or at minimum, finding and fixing defects in the system that can be repaired before the next presidential election. They should proceed. Wouldn't Biden and company do the same if the situation were reversed? Or maybe Trump should just follow political expert Hillary Clinton's advice to Joe Biden, don't concede under any circumstances. Anthony says, uh, hands on the Bible. Whoever's taking the presidential oath on Inauguration Day will be the next president. We should wait till the legal processes are completed. Any celebrations or disappointments at this point are simply premature. Stay calm, fasten your seatbelts and be more like the Mexican president and Putin. God bless America and the world. And Guy says, uh, in the UK, a losing prime minister is leaving the back door of number 10 once the new prime minister gets the nod from the Queen. Why on earth does the US allow its losing president to camp in the White House for two months? That question 
from Guy. Joining us for our first topic uh, we have with us now in this part of the uh, programme, others joining us later, uh, Imogen Page uh, Jarrett, who's a research analyst with the Economist Intelligence Unit, and uh, Andrew Blazy, who's a director with Crow and Mooring International, the leading global government affairs, public policy and public relations firm, where he advises business executives across Asia as they engage with the US government. Uh, uh, Imogen Page Jarrett, maybe if we start with you. Good morning. Thank you for for, for joining us. Um, the, Good the, uh, everyone is speculating, uh, having a punt today at the sort of big question, uh, which is uh, how will uh, Biden's approach to China uh, differ from that of Trump, which has been uh, singular uh, in many ways? Uh, what's your answer to the question? Yes, so I think although under Biden there will be some major shifts in foreign policy, the general direction of the US-China relationship is not going to change under his leadership. And that's because over the past few years in the US, a strong bipartisan consensus has formed that China is a strategic competitor to the US. Um, I think that Biden would focus primarily on two areas. And that would be to maintain the current focus on addressing the trade and economic imbalances um, in the U.S.-China relationship in order to protect U.S. firms, um, albeit using different tactics to those of Donald Trump. Um, and secondly, to increase uh, attention on security and human rights issues, uh, which is in line with the trend we've seen in recent months. Um, so working towards those goals, I think we can expect to see two main differences uh, in his tactics. Firstly, the tone would be different. Uh, he would move away from the Trump administration's isolationist foreign policy and towards one of engagement. And secondly, we can expect him to work with allies, particularly the EU, to engage on China, uh, to engage China on these issues collectively. Um, it, this all sounds very moderate and uh, and reasonable and, and predictable, I guess. Uh, but uh, as compared to Trump, uh, would would he be seen as um, uh, you know going softer on China? No, I don't think we can see Biden going softer on China. If anything, I think uh, the pressure on China would actually increase under Biden um, because I think from China's perspective, you know, Trump has really. Um, withdrawn the U.S. from the international stage, um, a lot of multilateral institutions. Um, and, you know, in their perspective, you know, he's caused a lot of turmoil in the U.S., which to some extent is to China's favor, um, because it's a left room for China to expand its influence, especially in uh, developing countries. Um, whereas under Biden, I think because he would be working with like-minded partners like the EU, for example, or, or even, for example, the Quad, that's Australia, India, and Japan, um, I, think, I think it would be increasingly difficult for China. And although, for example, we could expect Biden to um, potentially remove some of the tariffs that the Trump administration has put in place, He's going to be replacing those with alternative measures, um, and that could include things like uh, legal action against Chinese firms that have violated intellectual property rights um, of U.S. firms. Um, 
uh, and also further sanctions, for example, on Chinese companies and uh, Chinese officials and so on. And in strategic terms, do you think that he's going to try and uh, be a little more aggressive in the uh, in this area, in this region, the South China Sea? What do you what about the strategic uh, approach? Yeah, I think in the South China Sea, uh, the U.S. would look to continue to try and counter China's influence. Um, I think a rising concern is also Chinese investments. Um, in, in the region, um, in disputed waters, um, and how Chinese influence might be affecting countries in Southeast Asia and how China might be influencing those governments through trade investments um, and so on. Um, I think the U.S. will try and look to, for example, strengthening cooperation with NATO in the South China Sea, um, but that could be difficult because very few of those members actually have security interests in Asia. Um, the alternative would be the Quad, uh, India, Japan, and Australia. But again, aside from Australia, to a certain extent, uh, none of those countries have significant military capabilities. So the U.S. might continue to find itself um, you know, pursuing the strategy alone, continuing with military patrols, um, freedom of navigation, um, operations, and obviously that's going to continue to aggravate China. You mentioned the Quad a couple of times. Uh, I mean, how firm is that? What sort of substance is there behind that, that alliance of those, uh, those four nations, um, led more or less by the United States, including India? Yeah, I mean, I think they share a con uh, common concern about China's rising influence in Asia. Um, but apart from that, you know, there isn't, we still don't have much clarity about the principles um, or the goals of uh, this organization. You know, they've only, they met recently and it was only for the second time uh, since 2018. And I think one of the main constraints is within those four countries, there are, you know, there's a lot of disagreements, um, you know, between uh, between India, Japan, and so on. I think it's very difficult for them to uh, establish common ground on like, how to how to tackle China. So at the moment, um, in the short term, in the next two years, I don't see them making significant progress. And that's why I think the U.S. would be left um, kind of isolated to push its interests in South China Sea. Okay, uh, there's an email from Tom. Uh, with the subject line, China Joe, question uh, mark. Tom says, congratulate Biden, too early, too late, too quick, too slow. Whatever they do, China and Russia will be the focus of criticism and conspiracy theory. Well, looking at Joe Biden's potential China views, Biden's likely Secretary of State, Chris Coons, has stated profoundly cynical anti-China views in interviews over the last several years. It's the ultimate irony that Hong Kongers continue to support Trump while he stated the Hong Kong protests were China's affair. She is a friend and she is the greatest leader in a hundred years and would have sold them all down the river if he'd got the trade deal he wanted. Perhaps the affinity between the two is that they are both anti-immigrant, xenophobic, localist movements founded on 
uh, on own people supremacy question mark that comes from Tom Andrew Blasey good morning to you and, and thanks for jo thank you for joining good us morning, uh, how do you think Biden is going to approach um, uh, international relations and particularly Asia and uh, China there seems to be quite a lot of agreement that the tone as we were hearing there will, will certainly be different do you think the substance will as well I think if we were to take your question and look at it through the lens of economic and trade policy, um, I like to come back to a couple of, of key points. So the first for the listeners to keep in mind is that the same states that surged for President Trump in 2016 due to, frankly, his posture on trade when, when uh, going up against um, then Hillary Clinton were the same exact states that opted to switch to President-elect, uh, you know, presumed President-elect Joe Biden. Joe will be keeping that squarely in mind, especially now that we're even hearing today rumbles of, of a potential 2024 uh, rerun uh, of, of President Trump, um, you know, four years from now. So I think that's something to really keep in mind, and I would encourage listeners to remember that I think we're hearing some of the high-level takeaways on why um, Joe Biden will maintain a tough posture and a tough stance when it comes to that. Um, but it's just important to remember, you know, how the how elections matter. And I think that, you know, what's the one thing that any U.S. president, first term U.S. president thinks about is a second term on day one. Right. So I think that's important to keep in mind. I'll also say this to you. This hasn't been getting too much coverage, I think, in the media, is that we have to remember over the past, you know, four years, many U.S. officials who served in the Obama-Biden administration, um, if I had to guess, are very likely to return to a Biden foreign policy or trade agenda, right? So the same folks in the inner workings in those years are likely to return. And these individuals in many ways were attacked over the past four years under Trump for positions that were perceived as too light on China, right? That's really something that the current administration under President Trump really drew to the forefront. So you might suspect then that those same officials, should they be returning to the White House or to other elements of the U.S. government, will, will remember that. They'll remember that there was this lasting impression of being too light on China and that that perception will carry through into the administration the new administration in a very practical way. I think your, your fellow, um, uh, my fellow guests on, on the program really talked about a return to multilateralism, and that's the big message that I'd leave with your, with your listeners. You know, under President Biden, multilateralism and regional alliances is really the, the name of the game. Um, and you have to remember that that's set against the backdrop that trade in its own part will probably not take a top priority in the first year or maybe even in the first two years uh, for President Biden. That was very much the case when President Obama first took office in 2008 under a different pretense of, of national crisis at the time, right? So it's in our view that for this reason, reason, regional forums and regional multilateral settings become very important. So think of forums like APEC, right, or the G20. These are forums where not only will the U.S. have the desire and the machinations under a President Biden to engage with allies or even non-allies in various strategic terms and partnerships, but also these forums are, apt, are more likely to be better settings for the U.S. to engage China directly, you know, versus I think President Trump's calling card, which has always been about unilateralism and bilateral approaches, right? I think we should even expect to see President Trump, uh, President Biden lean in more to engagement with China through these multilateral settings. 
Um, what, what about um, institutions like the World Health Organization? That was not favored by Trump. Do you think Biden will um, return to that and work with the WHO? Uh, I think and, that and that's the pandemic. Should, yeah, I think we should absolutely expect that that, that um, President Biden would return the U.S. to the World Health Organization. It probably will not be without some concerns, right? Again, again, to take that middle of the road uh, approach. But I think I think that those likely will be well addressed. And if I had to say, the U.S. is probably on its way to returning to the WHO. Uh, what, what about uh, an executive order that, uh, you know, that will uh, uh, impact Hong Kong quite a lot, and that's the Made in Hong Kong label. Uh, right now, Hong Kong has uh, appealed to the uh, WTO. Uh, and um, so when President Biden uh, comes into power in January, did you think this could be reversed? I don't think so. Um, while anything is possible, um, I don't think that these issues will take a top priority for President Biden, and therefore one might not expect them to be so readily or, or, or swiftly reversed. I think that President Biden's narrative and the campaign trail very much leaned into the Buy American philosophy. There was actually a point in which, and, and President Trump and, and others in, in, his, in his administration, like Peter Navarro, actually were quite quick to point this out. There was actually a moment in this presidential campaign where, uh, where then Vice President Biden's candidate actually sought to outflank President Trump in terms of, of, of you know, trade policy um, issues, including along the lines of Buy American. So I don't think folks should expect sort of a, 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 a reversion to, to, you know, sort of pre-Trump administration status quo. I think that a lot of those items will remain, but they'll undergo um, modification, uh, as you will, over time, depending on domestic circumstances in the U.S. and depending on what can be achieved multilaterally. So, for example, as it relates to Hong Kong, I think folks should, should keep in mind that if the U.S. is probably going to do things related to Hong Kong, it probably will come in a multilateral fashion, you know, with the U.S. working with other countries alongside. Yeah, Imogen Page, Jarrett, what would you expect his policy to be like on, on, uh, on Hong Kong? Uh, he did, Joe Biden did express support for uh, protesters uh, last year and praised them for um, uh, supporting the autonomy that Hong Kong had been promised and, and, and so on. Uh, is he likely to continue that line? Yes, so I think this would be part of a broader push under Biden to step up pressure on China on human rights issues. Um, I think previous U.S. administrations have been hesitant to push China too hard on human rights for fear of derailing economic ties. But I think in the current climate, with uh, you know bipartisan support within uh, the uh, political institutions, and then also among the public, it will be desirable and also politically useful for Biden. Um, to focus on human rights issues, um, and these are shared by these are concerns shared by other Western governments, including the EU. So, I mean, recently uh, we've had, in response to the national security law, the US revoking Hong Kong's preferential status um, as a separate customs and travel territory from mainland China, um, and this has also led to um, the existing US Hong Kong extradition treaty um, being withdrawn too. Um, so I think we can 
expect that these would main, remain in place. I don't think we can expect these to be revoked under Biden. Um, uh, and I think we can expect also additional sanctions on Chinese officials or firms which are uh, perceived to have violated uh, human rights in Hong Kong. Um, I think there could also be increased scrutiny of, of Hong Kong firms as well, potentially. So I, what does this mean? It means overall um, this kind of policy uncertainty uh, is going to dampen foreign investment um, in Hong Kong uh, in the short term and undermine, basically, Hong Kong's status as an international business hub. Um, but, uh, I mean, I don't think... So one thing that will continue to work in Hong Kong's favour is, you know, its role as a conduit for investment between China and the rest of the world. That's not going to go away. Uh, but definitely this, this uncertainty uh, will impact Hong Kong's business environment um, and investment flows, which is obviously not good news coming out of uh, the pandemic um, and also the protests last year. Um, the overall prospects for um, yeah, foreign, foreign trade and, and business and investment with Hong Kong does not look good. Um, what about Taiwan? Uh, uh, do you foresee any changes uh, between uh, the, uh, Taiwan and the U.S.? In, in the last few years, uh, yeah, uh, they they have uh, that there has been really friendly relationship, uh, you know, with, with the Taiwan government. Would that continue? Yeah, I think there would continue to be interest in the U.S. to strengthening economic ties with Taiwan and and also military ties. Um, it's interesting actually because I think uh, a lot of people in Taiwan were actually very pro-Trump, um, and that purely because he will seem to be very hard on China. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, Biden would become popular there as well. Uh, I think it would very much depend on his uh, China stance. Um, but I don't think that the Biden administration would take such uh, aggressive moves as the Trump administration has done in, with regards to Taiwan. Uh, for example... I wouldn't expect him to be sending high-level officials uh, for visits to Taiwan. Um, so I think we can basically expect a return to um, yeah, a, more, a more moderate approach. But, I mean, the general direction, the general interest uh, in improving U.S. relations with Taiwan would still be there. Uh, Andrew Blasey, what about Taiwan? I think, I think you know, my fellow guests, has it right. I don't have too much more to add to uh, on that. I think Taiwan um, and issues around Taiwan will continue to receive favorable views on a bipartisan basis. Um, not, and that's not just, of course, as it relates to uh, President Biden, but also congressionally, right, in the United States. Um, so I suspect that that will continue. But I think it's going to continue against the backdrop of, of all the other issues that we talked about. And I think we have to remember that after the last four years, not just on the issues of Taiwan, South China Sea, trade, you know, U.S. posture towards the Asia-Pacific region, there's been so so much has happened over the last four years um, set against the backdrop of, of an incoming administration that's really looking to align and achieve domestic priorities. I would just encourage listeners, you know, in Hong Kong to remember that. 
that U.S. U.S. posture and, and actions towards Asia might actually come across as slow over the next coming 6, 12, or 18 months as the U.S. looks to tackle some pretty important domestic priorities. What, let's look at just a little bit at the history. What happened to U.S. relations? They seem to have sort of fallen off a cliff. At some point, did Trump kind of uh, hit a nerve? Um, there seemed to be a sudden deterioration uh, under Trump. Uh, but as you say, that has bipartisan support. Uh, what happened? Was it something that, uh, I, that China did or what? I think on the trade policy front, Pre- President Trump was very effective both in his initial campaign and throughout his presidency on maintaining a very high degree of pressure and what we call political heat on the issue of U.S.-China trade. Um, so much so that for at any point in time in my entire career that I can remember, Hugh, where these types of issues bubbled to number one, you know, priority on, you know, the American conscience, right? You know, trade issues never really ran that high in the list of priorities of any administration relative to things like health care or education. But it was, it was the very heated focus on the implications of U.S.-China trade on American workers, particularly those that in the Midwest that vaulted the president to, to his initial election, in which he still, by the way, received, I think, a significant amount of support based on the outcomes of this election, um, that that had, a, that had a substantive effect on sort of the American conscious when it comes to the state of U.S.-China trade. What I will also, though, say to you, and I think this is important to, to, for listeners to also think about. Very briefly, Andrew. Is, yeah. yeah, yeah, is that is that Joe Biden will also, when it comes to foreign policy, will likely put additional spotlight on high, you know, highly perceived autocrats. So expect more focus on, in the ecosphere on places like North Korea and Venezuela, say, relative to the pressure that, that comes on China. Okay. Well, Andrew Blasey, thank you very much indeed for joining us, the director with Kroll and Mooring International, a global uh, government affairs, public relations, public policy and public relations firm. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you to Imogen Page Jarrett, who's a research analyst with the Economist Intelligence Unit. Uh, we're going to continue the topic after the news at nine. So please, uh, please keep contributing. Backchat at rthk.hk is our email address. Or go to our Facebook page as well. And later we're going to be talking about cases of animal cruelty and uh, also smuggling. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy today with a couple of light rain patches at first. Temperatures up to about 25 degrees. 22 degrees at the moment with a relative humidity down at 56%. The Constitution gives no role in this process to wealthy media corporations. The projections and commentary of the press do not get veto power over the legal rights of any citizen, including the President of the United States. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Backchat on a Tuesday morning with Ada Wong and me, Hugh Chiverton. We were talking um, in the first part of the programme. We're continuing to talk about the uh, Biden administration in the United States and how that would uh, relate to uh, Asia in foreign policy and China and, of course, especially us here in Hong Kong. Uh, if you've got any thoughts or questions or comments, please give us a call. 233-88266 is the number. You can save my voice by talking yourself. Uh, 
233-88266 or you can email backchat at rthk.hk or you can go to our Facebook page as well and share your thoughts there. That's backchat on rthk radio 3. Later we're also going to be talking about uh, animal, cases of animal smuggling and uh, animal cruelty. Uh, again, we look for your contributions and your thoughts uh, there. Uh, first of all, on uh, today's uh, first topic, uh, Alan says, you ask if Trump's assertion that if Biden won, that Beijing would own America was valid. Really, is any statement Trump makes, especially about a rival, valid? I'm sure we will be hearing lots about Hunter Biden and his mysterious laptop for the next four years. But Hunter is not Joe. There is no family real estate business wheeling and dealing from the West Wing while owing billions to overseas banks. When Joe was VP under Obama, he dealt with China, but since then, everybody in the world has learnt, like Hong Kong, that with Xi there, there is no pretense at democracy, that no dissent will be tolerated, that no treaty is respected. Trump disdained alliances, and so, with less reliable support, China's neighbours have been under increasing pressure as China expands its influence in the region. Joe is the opposite in this respect. He won't be pulling out of Korea, for instance. As for Hong Kong, support for for democracy, sanctions against those responsible for repression were bipartisan. Under Biden, these are less likely to be jettisoned if she dangles a trade concession. I hope that as soon as Biden announces his cabinet picks that RTHK can question them on the topic. That's from uh, Alan. Uh, James, thank you for uh, your good wishes uh, for my voice. Uh, Mushroom says, this is great. After the election, you start talking about all the things that Biden may do, but it's a pity before the election, nobody knew what Biden or Trump wanted to do. If the public knew more about what was going to be done, we'd probably have a better election. Now it's stuck in the middle. China is China for China. It's a pity Carrie doesn't let Hong Kong know uh, what's going on. And uh, Matthew says, uh, where's Caller Mike these days? I think he's in the US, actually, uh, Matthew. Uh, and Matthew goes on, regarding Biden, while I understand that the thinking on the CCP is supposedly bipartisan, I'm quite sceptical about Biden's willingness and ability to stand up in the required manner, given his track record. I think this may be a historic turning point and potential disaster for Hong Kong and for the global effort to deal effectively with the CCP. Like if the strategy to stand up to Hitler was suddenly softened in the late 30s and the world had returned to appeasement and being reasonable. I will be absolutely delighted to be wrong about this and I'm waiting to see if Biden accepts a congratulatory call from the Taiwan president as a leading indicator. Those thoughts uh, from Matthew. Backchat at rthk.hk is our email address. Joining us now, we have Cheng Siwai, who's a senior lecturer in the journalism department at the Baptist University. Mr Cheng, good morning to you. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. Uh, okay, the basic question is, you know, do you expect Biden's policy towards uh, China and Hong Kong uh, to be different from that of Donald Trump? I don't think there will be a great change in the policy towards China because the uh, so-called bipartisan consensus has been laid out in the last several years, especially with the uh, trade disputes grown up into a major obstacle and many people have realized uh, in the U.S., oh, uh, to a larger extent, in the whole Western world, that the 
uh, allowing China into the WTO and have this uh, tremendous economic growth uh, has not changed the fundamental conditions inside China. So uh, using trade to get the Chinese people rich doesn't mean there will be a much democracy and other uh, objectives which they had envisioned long before. And uh, what they think is to get China uh, into the role of a responsible uh, player in the international community in terms of other things. That is quite difficult because those are the values things. Those are not very tangible, very concrete. You can find specifically in uh, one push or another push. It takes a long time to educate the people and also to have some certain uh, movements inside to corresponding to this kind of push. Uh, but the current situation is that the economic situation and the uh, political considerations are not totally integrated into one. And uh, in the past, uh, most of the time when I was in the U.S., we see uh, China release some of the uh, dissidents, and then uh, there will be a con kind of concession from the U.S. for uh, MFN and others. And uh, gradually, this kind of leverage has gone, and uh, there is no specific changes that you can demand and for. So recently they moved into the human rights area and demanding changes in Xinjiang and others. Uh, China has uh, absolutely refused to do that and uh, there is uh, no leverage on that yet. So I think Biden is the, uh, if elected and uh, become president and he is the democratic president and uh, the uh, Past theory, past history told us that the democratic presidents often raised the issues of uh, human rights and other issues in this area. So um, I think leaders in Beijing have anticipated this, and uh, that would be uh, something they, they know uh, Biden may raise. And in the other areas of, uh, say, uh, Southeast Asia, I think that would be. Uh, something uh, depending on Biden's plan, because the U.S. forced China, uh, forced the Southeast Asian countries to choose between the U.S. and China. And China has the one belt, one road uh, policy, which is going to uh, benefit these countries. This one belt, one road initiative bring a lot of trade to Southeast Asian countries, which are on this road. And they would try to uh, benefit from the economic side with China and balancing their strategic uh, alliances or uh, cooperations with the U.S. in order to uh, maximize their national interests. This is the uh, grand geopolitical map. So far, we haven't seen any specific things that would um, change this map. Um so, so you you think that um, Biden will probably uh, go less on a, on a trade war and dispute on tariffs and and so on, uh, but focus uh, probably more on human rights and and regional security issues. Uh, this is a possibility, but we don't know for sure because uh, Biden would not let China uh, have a, a, the upper hand in this kind of uh, trade disputes. That is. Uh, set by uh, 
President Trump, but Biden will not do something uh, very obvious that uh, people would call him uh, a weaker president on this side. So I don't anticipate any major changes. Probably they will negotiate the trade deals again for the second phase and uh, how to carry out the first phase, because phase one is um, somewhat hindered by the uh, pandemic, and now uh, some of the goals may not be able to reach within the time frame. That is everyone can see. Do you see a China that is more isolated uh, in, in the next four years? Do you think that uh, Biden will build on the Quad, which is something we talked about in the first part of the program, the, an alliance between the United States, Australia, India and uh, Japan? Do you think that he will push uh, ASEAN uh, more towards the uh, US? And uh, we've also seen, I mean, just a recent survey showing that uh, China is kind of least popular in in. Uh, uh, Japan and Korea. Japan and Korea is, uh, seems quite, really quite hostile to to uh, Japan, uh, to China uh, at the moment. Uh, do you think that that sort of uh, pattern will continue? I do not know for sure, but I think China will also have some of the uh, very useful measures to take, uh, for instance, to increase the trade with these countries and also to have more personal people-to-people uh, -people exchanges once the pandemic is over. Uh, in the past several years, uh, there are Chinese tourists benefiting uh, the local economy and also uh, increased trade with China and uh, people's uh, exchanges uh, could help this as well. More people are visiting China these years and see something different. Uh, remember, in the 1980s, uh, only the Western rich countries can uh, have their tourists going to China. Most of the uh, developed, uh, developing world uh, at that time was relatively uh, not so wealthy to have this kind of international travel. And in the 21st century, most of these countries become um, mid-income, uh, middle-income countries, and they have uh, uh, quite a large uh, middle class and uh, they would like to see the world. And with people getting to know each other much better, with more uh, exchange of students and uh, all these kind of activities, I think it will be better for China to promote itself. Uh, we have to remember, China also has some of the latest proposals for uh, individual countries. Uh, they would like to have more uh, bilateral agreements and promote these kind of uh, exchanges. I think it will be helpful, but to what extent can they uh, turn the uh, recent negative feeling towards China into a much better approval of China's behavior? Uh, it depends on what China does in the next several years, and I think leaders in Beijing understand all this. Uh, they uh, comprehend all these kind of mood swings in other countries, uh, they will do something as well. So it's a kind of dynamic, interactive relationship between the Chinese and uh, Southeast Asian countries and between the U.S. and China. Do they care about those mood swings, as, as, as you put it? Does it really matter to Beijing? I think uh, it sometimes matters because, uh, as you, we see in the... Uh, Japanese case for quite a while that the uh, Chinese leaders are not very happy with uh, 
the Japanese Prime Minister, former Japanese Prime Minister's uh, words and deeds. And uh, the uh, countries uh, went down to a very low point uh, in their relationship. But gradually, uh, international uh, situation changed, and uh, the uh, Chinese leaders care about how to make more friends in certain countries, and uh, they would change their policy as well. So I would say uh, they do care uh, to what extent that would change their policy. That's the question. And what about the situation in Hong Kong? Uh, this morning we saw the uh, addition of former officials on the sanction list. Um, do, do you think this will continue? I don't know this yet. Uh, I, I don't really know uh, what would happen uh, in Beijing that would affect Hong Kong. But I know uh, on the other side uh, of the Pacific, the U.S. has been pushing this very hard. And uh, we see the uh, designation of some officials uh, by the Treasury Secretary, uh, the Treasury Department. And I think uh, the U.S. side will continue to push this. And as for the reactions from Beijing, uh, I'm not in a position to know. It, does it, you know, come, is it a good story kind of in China? Plucky Hong Kong stands up to Beijing? I mean, a good story in America? Does it sell well? Uh, I don't really know how that would uh, really affect the uh, public opinion there. But for the uh, officials or politicians, I think they have already uh, formed their minds about how to deal with China and how, uh, particularly uh, in the matter of Taiwan and Hong Kong. And in these areas, I think they have a certain kind of bipartisan uh, consensus. And uh, that's why uh, sometimes even the Congress are more uh, go, go further than the administration in certain ways. Um, do you think it's likely uh, for China to... Um to continue uh, with, uh, for example, incentives uh, for uh, U.S. investment into the Greater Bay Area so that uh, economically, uh, uh, you know, the ties uh, between U.S. and uh, China could be more firm? I think that would be very likely, not just for the U.S. I think the, uh, the overall Chinese policy is to attract foreign investors into China, and particularly in the Greater Bay Area. And this area has a lot of high-tech firms as well. But in, because of this, uh, some of the companies in the West would be a little bit more hesitant than before as the, uh, the, the acquisitions of China using U.S. technology and so on have been fanned by the uh, Trump administration in the last several years. And uh, especially when the U.S. pushes the uh, European countries now to use Huawei for the uh, 5G. And all these would make these companies to uh, think twice before they uh, really invest a huge amount and have certain reliance on the production from China because of the pandemic also showed that the uh, supply chain on China is uh, probably uh, sometimes weak if uh, there is an interruption and uh, they fear the uncertainty of all this. But the Chinese policy will be uh, to attract as much investment as possible in this area. 
area to uh, speed up the scientific research and the manufacturing. As we know, the uh, the uh, manufacturing of the chips is the weakest link in the Chinese supply chain. So China wants to increase the production and also uh, try to make sure that they can have self-sufficiency. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us, Chang Siwai, Senior Lecturer of Journalism Department at the Baptist University. Uh, some emails. Uh, S says, uh, most Americans do not understand foreign policy. When there were problems in Pakistan, a lot of them actually cancelled their flights to New Delhi. Also, would anybody have done better than Trump for COVID? Most Americans voted on herd mentality. If Trump had enforced mask wearing, he would again have been condemned as there would have been shortages of masks and people would have complained on the grounds of civil liberties. Now, Biden has got a head start and see how he performs. All resources, including vaccines, will be easier. And uh, Mushroom says Trump could see all the small businesses closing down and big industry going to China, which is exactly what's happened to Hong Kong. All the small family businesses shut down, go downs, uh, close, uh, business gone to China. That's from uh, Mushroom. Thank you very much indeed uh, for those uh, comments. Finally today, we wanted to turn to the issue of uh, animal smuggling and uh, animal uh, abuse. There's been a recent seizure of uh, some more uh, goods, including animals. Uh, over the summer, there were... Uh, a few cases of uh, uh, animals uh, washed up in, in cages uh, uh, being uh, smuggled. It's not quite clear in every case which direction uh, they were going, as well as a spate of uh, animal abuse cases, including one of a wild boar. Um, uh, this is an email from Jay. Uh, who says, I happen to know a little bit about this subject because somebody dumped three dogs uh, in our neighbourhood. Uh, for years, our neighbours tried everything under the sun to help them. It's not as easy as you think, which is why the local shelters are flooded with unwanted pets and euthanised. I read over, and euthanised, I read over 8,000 animals a year. First, the current animal abuse law is antiquated, a copy and paste job from the UK in the 1930s. The AFCD proposed in 2017 to change the laws, but till today, nothing has been done. Second, the government refuses to roll out TNR, Trap, Neuter and Return Programme. Dogs, cats and wild boars multiply so quickly. It's the most humane way. We have the AFCD with all the resources available, equipments, vet staff and so on. Why not do a bit more? Uh, and third, the DOJ's nonchalant attitude towards basic animal welfare has to shockingly walk away from prosecuting someone who was investigated and arrested for throwing 30 animals out of his apartment. Even the SPCA has come out with a statement to condemn their attitude, and they took funding from the government. Since then, we've had two cases of mass illegal smuggling of pets, a boar beheaded, a cat's stomach cut open, dog's head chopped three times, puppy tied up at the mouth and legs and left to die in a dumpster. The charities didn't, didn't get a cent from the government, and often volunteers use their own resources to do rescue work. How and when did we stoop so low on our ethics? Thank you very much indeed for those comments. Joining us now we have Karina O'Carroll, uh, Animal Welfare Education Manager with the uh, Animals Asia Foundation. Good morning to you. Good morning Th to you. Thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, thanks Thanks for joining us. Uh, okay, let's talk about the animal smuggling first of all. So we've had, this, we've had those, those cases over the summer. And, and more recently, what's what's going on there, and and, and why has this suddenly come to uh, light in such this uh, sad and prominent way? Well, I think obviously with the situation that we're all going through and experiencing this year with COVID, um, uh, there's been uh, obviously difficulties that people are experiencing in uh, potentially relocating their pets, um, and the recent smuggling cases and dead animals washing up on our shores. 
um, have been nothing short of horrific. So all I can say really, as mentioned, without knowing the details of the cases at this moment, other than what's being publicly reported, is that if you're relocating with your pets, please choose reputable IPATA registered pet relocators. Um, IPATA is basically the International Pet and Animal Transportation Association. And um, pet transporters who are members um, with IPATA, they, have, um, they must follow ethical guidelines in pet travel and relocation. So really trying to cut corners, it also puts Hong Kong at risk as a whole of losing um, status as being rabies-free. Um, it also puts, obviously, the animals at severe risk. Um, and in addition, though, there's a big public responsibility to stop the demand for pets through online and other dangerous and illegal channels. Um, it puts the individual animals at grave risk. So really, um, people, if they need to relocate their pets, they should be considering reputable channels. And obviously, these sad and tragic cases of animals washing up just highlights, um, you know, the risk to these animals if um, illegal channels to, to move animals around are used. So right. It's a main issue, um, uh, a very long quarantine time uh, for animals uh, being relocated, you know, in a proper way. Yeah, I think the quarantine definitely is an issue, but it is there for a reason. You know, quarantine obviously um, has its place, and um, when you're relocating animals, you really need to consider, um, you know, that everything is done properly to, as I I mentioned, you know, Hong Kong has a status currently as being rabies-free, but all these cases just highlight that there is smuggling and there is illegal channels that are, um, you know, being used to transport animals, and it not only puts the individual animals at grave risk, but also, um, you know, these rabies-free status. If we lose the rabies-free status, you know, in the long run, it will mean longer quarantine and much greater issues um, uh, transporting and relocating animals. So really, people and reducing the demand. I mean, if people continue to buy animals online and use illegal channels to ship them, um, you know, it's, it's going to end up with much greater problems in the long run. What about those recent cases of, of animal abuse? I mean, sort of, or what amounts to torture of, of animals? Uh, it, it, does that point to a, a failure in our, in our legislation at the moment, the laws that we have on the books? I think definitely the laws need a, a, a huge overhaul. Um, as um, your commenter before mentioned, they're, they're uh, very antiquated. And at the moment, for many years, Animals Asia and many other NGOs have been advocating for improvements to CAP 169, which is the cruelty legislation. Um, basically, at the moment, we're all kind of waiting for a draft to come out or a final version um, from the DOJ. And it's basically going to include uh, provision, provisions such as um, introducing a positive duty of care, um, very importantly, and enhancing provisions for prevention of cruelty to animals in the first place. Um, Basically, all animals have have basic needs, and as a society in particular with companion animals, we should be seeking to meet those specific individual needs. If you don't know what the needs of different animals are, then I suggest much much further research um, before deciding to bring a pet into your home. Um, In Hong Kong, you know, we often see these cruelty cases coming to light where animals had in some form food, water, and shelter, but it's simply not enough. Um, Loosely owning an animal is not enough, Um, and if you decide to take an animal into your home or claim to own one, you have to be responsible and step up to give that animal everything it needs to live a happy and healthy life. Um, So with regards to the legislation, we all hope that, you know, Um, introducing things such as positive duty of care, such as, you know, what animals actually need to live a good life. Um, It's already been introduced in the United States, um, uh, the United Kingdom, Japan, Taiwan, New Zealand, um, Australia, and Singapore. 
Um, but a lot of these cases frustratingly seem to fall apart once they reach the prosecution level, which is where things need to definitely be changed. I know there's lots of legal experts in Hong Kong who are currently trying to educate and run training courses for magistrates and prosecutors so that these cases, when they do reach um, a level of prosecution, are given much greater um, attention within the courts. And obviously with the current and proposed changes and amendments, we hope that the maximum penalties will obviously be considered because at the moment slap on the wrist, um, you know, uh, punishments or no punishment at all for what seem to be fairly clear cases of cruelty, it just has to change. Uh, um, uh, uh, some people attributed, you know, the, the recent surge of uh, animal cruelty cases to um, stress under COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. Do do you do you think so? And uh, do you see this big surge of cases? Yeah. Um, I think it's tragic, obviously, that individuals are perhaps experiencing hardship or difficulties in the midst of COVID, and obviously the times that we're all going through at the moment. However, I will say that there are always people willing to help. Um, you know people just have to reach out. Um, Obviously, um, uh, if people are struggling financially, um, the SPCA, for example, started an initiative to help feed pets from eligible households. Um, You know, all of the other shelters as well are helping where they can with individual cases and pleas for assistance. Um, But definitely, I mean, everyone's under a huge amount of stress at the moment. Um, uh, But as responsible pet owners, you know, animals have to be factored in um, to plans and obviously if things are, um, if, you know, people are experiencing dire need or stress uh, from COVID or other issues, you know, definitely reaching out for help and not simply choosing to abandon your animal. There's no excuse um, for abandonment. You know, there are obviously, while all our shelters are struggling at the moment and have very few resources, you know, there's a lot of the animal-loving community who are always willing to try and help. So I hope, obviously, people can reach out if they are experiencing stress or difficulties with their pets. Okay, well, Karina Rokaroff, many thanks for joining us. Uh, Animal Welfare Education Manager at the Animals Asia Foundation. Uh, Last word going on Facebook to Nig, who says, Imagine Trump out of the White House in a straitjacket, followed by his kids kicking and screaming and Melania smiling. Maybe no need to imagine. Ha ha. Seriously, if you look at the popular vote, Electoral College, House and Senate, the message is clear. They want Trump gone. Let's do things the un-Trump way. That comes from Nick. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Ada, many thanks to you. That's it for the programme today. The weather, many cloudy. A couple of light rain patches around at first and temperatures up to about 25 degrees. The outlook is going to be mainly fine and dry in the next couple of days and slightly cool in the morning and at night becoming cloudy. Towards the weekend, 22 degrees, the latest reading, the relative humidity at 53%. Our hands often touch public items covered with viruses and bacteria. When we touch our eyes, nose or mouth, the pathogens can enter the body. Health is in our hands. To prevent infection, follow the seven hand cleaning steps. Rub hands for 20 seconds. Rinse thoroughly. Dry with a clean cloth or paper towel. If you can't wash your hands and they aren't visibly soiled, use an alcohol-based hand rub. What if our hands get dirty again? Clean them properly. 9.31, the news with Samantha Butler. Health experts and politicians have welcomed the news that an experimental coronavirus vaccine is more than 90% effective in preventing COVID-19 infections. It's developed in the US and Germany by Pfizer and BioNTech. Dr. 
Uh, Civic Party leader Alvin Young says it would be ridiculous if Beijing really ousted any pan-democrat lawmakers. He told RTHK this morning that he trusted their supporters would understand their difficult decision to resign en masse if any of them really were disqualified. And President Trump's campaign team has filed a lawsuit against the state of Pennsylvania, alleging its mail-in voting system for the presidential election lacked transparency and verifiability. It seeks an emergency injunction to stop state officials from certifying Joe Biden's victory in Pennsylvania, the success which gave him enough electoral college votes to be certain of victory. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven. As well. Oh, so shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decide of what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. In depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning, welcome to Tuesday, back again for more, and of course it's mostly Aussie Day, or that part of the world anyway, kicking off at 10.40. With Jared Watts, all the news that's fit to broadcast from Down Under, plus his choices and great music you didn't know you needed to know. After 11, Dr. Merrin Pierce with us to talk birds today. I've been looking forward to this one. His guest is going to be Helen Fong from the Hong Kong Bird Watching Society. And I'm sure we'll have some lovely pictures to show you on Facebook Live as well. Amazing cast of feathered friends here in Hong Kong, and she's going to introduce you to a few. 10, uh, 11, even 40, New York Times best-selling author Paul French is back to read the second of four newly adapted and recorded for us episodes from his book Destination Shanghai. Each one talks about how a famous person ended up at some time in their life in Shanghai. So today, two poets meet in Frenchtown. He's talking about Langston Hughes and the all-but-forgotten Irene West. It's set in 1933. And it's great, so do listen if you can. 12.10, we're off to Melbourne for our weekly chat with biz futurist Morris Misalowski. And of course, we will be on Facebook Live on and off throughout the morning. (laughs) 